Exodus chapter 5. We continue our sermon series this morning through the book of Exodus. And chapter 5 will be our text this morning. We will read Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and uh, I will read the whole text, the whole chapter, and afterward I, like Pastor Zach, will say, thanks be to God, and if you agree, or I won't say that, uh, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You're going to say thanks be to God. Exodus chapter 5, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people And their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task by making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. 
They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, Yahweh, look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ascribe to you glory and strength. We ascribe to you the glory due to your name. We worship you in the splendor of holiness. Father, for your voice is over the waters. You are the God of glory and you thunder over many waters. Your voice is powerful. Your voice is full of majesty. Your voice breaks the cedars. Your voice breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Your voice flashes forth flames of fire. Your voice shakes the wilderness. Father, in your temple, in your presence, your people cry out glory. For you sit enthroned over the flood. You sit enthroned as the king forever. Father, give your people strength. Bless your people with peace. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Cinematic history was forever altered in 1980 when Darth Vader spoke the words, Luke, I am your father. Sometimes I like to think that Pastor Kevin or Dave Warner did the same thing when their Lukes were born. Just kind of looked into their eyes and had a Star Wars moment with them. Anyway, Star Wars has gone on to uh, be a major franchise, unless you've been living under a rock, of course you know that. Um, movies, TV shows, uh, video games, toys, theme parks, there's Star Wars everywhere. And part of the reason for the popularity is that people, to some extent, identify with Star Wars. The story connects to people on some level, or else it wouldn't be so popular. I think that part of the reason why that's true, part of the reason why um, people identify with Star Wars is because ultimately, when you get past um, a lot of the... uh, the technology and the battles, when you get, kind of get to the core of the story, that ultimately Star Wars is a story about family. It's a story about fathers and their children, and specifically in the original uh, trilogy between Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker, and his children. And this was, this was like 42 years ago that this came out, so... If, if I'm spoiling anything right now for any of you, um, I think that's on you at this point. 
Anyway, everyone can connect with Star Wars to some degree or to a story about fathers and children because at the very least, everyone has a father. Uh, biologically, it's, um, it's impossible uh, for us, at least naturally, to reproduce without a father and a mother. So everyone has a father. Now, some of you had good fathers or have good fathers, and some of you didn't or don't. There are lifelong effects to the relationships that we have with our fathers, whether they're good or bad. There's a reason why uh, people who who struggle lifelong with these kinds of uh, relational or emotional or psychological issues, there's a reason that the term daddy issues uh, exists because of the the nature of the relationship between fathers and their children. This is true most ultimately because in his holy word, God reveals himself to us as father. That is his self-revelation. So that means that good fathers are good insofar as they accurately mirror the way that God loves and cares for his children. Bad fathers preach an anti-gospel with their lives. Abusive or absentee fathers are like a funhouse mirror to the character of God the Father. They distort his character. Of course, today is Father's Day. It's the day our nation celebrates every year, fatherhood and fathers, and in God's providence, He has us in Exodus chapter 5 for this Father's Day 2022. And we could preach Exodus chapter 5 in in different ways, accentuating different points, especially because Exodus chapter 5 is is really closely tied to Exodus chapter 6, which Pastor Kevin will preach next week, which is also pretty closely tied to Exodus 7, that I'll preach the week after that. And so we have to remember as we divide these texts up week by week that Moses wrote this story as one story, ultimately to be read in one sitting, and we're just, as we preach through it, we, we can only handle so much at a time, right? So we want to keep that in mind. But because in God's providence we find ourselves on Father's Day in this text, we're going to look at three ways in which Exodus chapter 5 calls us to trust our Heavenly Father. Three ways. Number one, we must trust when our Father speaks. Number two, we must trust our Father through sin and suffering. And number three, we must trust our Father's Son. Number one, we must trust when our Father speaks. Number two, we must trust in our Father through sin and suffering. And number three, we must trust in our Father's Son. The first thing we notice is that we must trust when our Father speaks. Another way to say that is we must trust the Word of God. That's what Moses is doing here. Remember back to Exodus chapters 3 and 4, Yahweh called Moses to go to Pharaoh and to say, Exodus 4, 22 through 23, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. How apropos on Father's Day that Yahweh calls Israel his son. 
In Exodus 4, when he tells Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, the message is, let my son go. Yahweh referring to Israel as his son is not unique in Scripture. That is to say, Israel is not the only uh, person or group of people that is referred to as God's son in the Bible. In Luke's genealogy, speaking of Luke, Luke the doctor, not Luke Skywalker, in Luke's genealogy, he calls Adam the son of God. Um, Israel, like Adam, has a unique covenant relationship with Yahweh. Yahweh had made a covenant with Abraham, and it's out of this covenant that Israel was born. Remember, Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob is renamed Israel. And then it is the 12 sons of Jacob who, be, who become the 12 tribes of Israel from out of this. So, so there is no Israel uh, until, until Jacob is born and then actually renamed Israel and then his family. And so it's out of Abraham's covenant that this, that this group of people, the Hebrews, Israel, is born. We will see moving forward in the book of Exodus that Yahweh will make another covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai when he gives them the Ten Commandments and the law, the instructions for the tabernacle. And so Yahweh's fatherly relationship, this is what we're trying, I'm trying to connect the dots for you here. What does it mean for God to be their father, right? How is, because a lot of times you'll hear people say things like this, and it, uh, progressive or liberal Protestant theology likes to speak in this terminology, but even people who are non-religious will say things like that. Like, you know, there's a sense in which we're all God's children, right? People talk that way. Like, God is the, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, that we are all humanity, we're all one family, and God is our father. And as creator, insofar as that God is creator, that is true. Right, But there's a sense in which there's a special relationship here. Yahweh isn't calling the Egyptians his son. right? He's calling Israel his son. And so that's what I'm trying to point to you. It's the covenant dynamic. It's the covenant relationship that's making that true. That was true of Adam. It's true of Noah. It's true of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel. This, the, the covenant dynamic, the covenant relationship with the Lord is what what creates this family dynamic, the reason why Yahweh calls himself their father. So Yahweh tells Moses, or he calls Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my son go. And in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, Moses obeys. It says, afterward, Moses and Aaron, that'd be a sweet nickname for Aaron though, Arrow. Moses and Aaron went, they went and they said to Pharaoh, you know, let my people go. From the opening words of Scripture, from Genesis 1-1, we see that God's word must be obeyed. There is no other option. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks and his word is obeyed as creation generates ex nihilo, out of nothing. The creation cannot help but obey the word of the Lord, right? So uh, God says, let there be light, and there's light. The light had no choice 
but to be because God commanded it to be. It's not as if the light was sitting there thinking, I'm not sure if I should exist right now. Let me pray about it. No, God says, let there be light, and there is light. God's word is powerful. God's word is creative. God's word must be obeyed. And the first time we see God's people disobey his word is in the garden when Adam sinned against God and broke the command to abstain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because Adam rebelled against God's word, then all of humanity has fallen into sin and death. God told Adam that if he sinned, he would surely die. Now, every single human being who is born is born in sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that we are all born spiritually dead and that we will all die. But God showed his grace to humanity when after Adam sinned, God spoke again. He came to Adam and Eve and he made a promise He promised that the seed of the woman, so if you're not used to like weird biblical talk, that means a human being, right? He's coming from, he's coming from the woman, he's going to be born of a woman, he's a human being, and that this human being would reverse the curse of death, and that this human being would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3 verse 15. From that point forward, from Genesis 3.15 forward, the scripture is telling us the story of two groups of people and two groups of people only. These are the only two kinds of people who have ever lived in the history of the world. Those who trust God's word and those who don't. There are no other categories. Abel trusted God's word. Cain didn't. Noah and his family trusted God's word. The rest of the world didn't. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they trusted God's word. Ishmael and Esau didn't. Now we see that Moses is trusting God's word, at least at the beginning here we'll notice that Moses and Israel have a lot of ups and downs throughout this story. But at the beginning of chapter 5, Moses is trusting God's word. Pharaoh doesn't. You see that line? Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Those who trust God's word, those who don't. Those who believe the promise, those who don't. Abel, Cain, Noah, the world. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, Esau, Moses, Pharaoh. The story of the Bible, there are only two types of people who have ever lived. As a church, as specific homes and specific families, as individuals here at Christ Community Church, we want to be a people who trust God's word. We want to be a people who build our lives on the gospel of Jesus. We want to be a people who love what God loves. And we want to be a people who hate what God hates. And we only know these things through the scripture. That is the only way we know 
anything about God, anything about the plan of salvation in Christ. I saw a good quote from Matt Chandler this week on Facebook. He said, if you're not confident in the authority of the scriptures, you will be a slave to whatever sounds right. Man, that's so true. That's what our culture does, man. We are tossed to and fro by whatever the present moment declares to be righteous. And man, if you're not confident in standing on the Bible, you're just going to sway back and forth with whatever the culture tells you is good or bad, whatever is righteous or evil. And there's different cultures in different areas, man. It's so weird this stuff is so arbitrary sometimes. I mean, you could be in one place where you are looked at as evil for not wearing a mask, and you could be in another place where you're looked at as evil for wearing a mask, right? And we're living in the same time. But if you're not grounded, and that was a silly example, the mask, I mean, there are much more serious sin issues that people do this kind of thing on, right? But it just ebbs and flows, right? Three years ago, none of us knew anything about that. And now it's become a point of righteousness in some places. There are others, but the culture does that. It's back and forth. We're tossed to and fro by whatever the culture tells us what is right and what is wrong. But we want to be a people who trust God's word. We want to be a people who stand on the truth of God's word the gospel. When it comes to life, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to justice, when it comes to the nature of the church, when it comes to family, when it comes to vocation, any topic, we are Bible people. We are scripture people. We are people who trust the word of our heavenly Father. The second thing is that we must trust our Father in sin and suffering. Pharaoh does not react positively to Moses' message. Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I don't know Yahweh. Pharaoh's about to get to know Yahweh uh, real well. But for now, he's, he's being ruled by his pride. Again, this is apropos for this month, isn't it? This is our introduction to Pharaoh, to this Pharaoh at least. Remember, it was a different Pharaoh that at the beginning, uh, Exodus 1 and 2, when we read about the systematic abortion of the Hebrew boys, that was a different Pharaoh. So now this is the first time we're seeing this Pharaoh who will take us through uh, this Exodus narrative. And it's interesting because Pharaoh says, I don't, I don't know Yahweh. Pharaoh would have known about the incident, the, the historical event with the Hebrew boys. He was not stupid. He's saying, I don't care about Yahweh. I don't worship him. He doesn't tell me what to do. So there's a sense in which you could say that if Yahweh struck first by saving Moses and whatever other baby boys that he did, that Exodus chapter 5 is when the empire strikes back. I've been setting that one up. This Pharaoh, man, he's like Darth Vader level villain in redemptive history. 
I don't know if it played the music when he walked into the room like it does for Darth Vader, but I like to think it does. Pharaoh, of course, falls in line with the seed of the serpent that can be traced throughout the scripture narrative, doesn't he? he imbo- Pharaoh embodies the unholy trinity that is the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what Pharaoh uh, is. He stands opposed to God. Yahweh commands that the slaves be freed to worship him. And not only does Pharaoh rebel against the word of God, I don't know if you noticed this in verse 9, Pharaoh calls God's word lying words. Look at verse 9 again. It says, Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Mm. Did God really say? That's who Pharaoh is, man. He's the seed of the serpent. He stands opposed to God. Not only does he rebel against the word of God, but he then also increases the suffering of the Hebrew people out of spite. Oh, you have time to go and worship? So it sounds like you need more work to do. You know, it's like when our kids are laying around saying how they're bored. Well, sounds like you need something to do, man. They get on board real quick. That's what Pharaoh's thinking. Well, if you got time to go worship, you must need more work to do. In his arrogance, he reasons that way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put more of a burden on them. So he ceases supplying straw for the slaves to make bricks, which he had been doing, and requires them now to gather all of their own straw while demanding the same amount of output in brick production. We know where this story is going, but uh, of course Israel didn't. We know that in God's providence, he allows uh, the suffering of his people because it will lead to their freedom and slavery, right? We know that. They don't know that at the time, right? And we'll get to that here in a minute, how they respond. But we know that's true. Yet in the midst of our own suffering, we don't always remember that, do we? We don't always remember that God is working these things together for his good, or for his glory and our good, should I say. Redemptive events like the Exodus, or the experiences of Job, or Joseph in Genesis, they clearly teach us that God works through the suffering of his people to bring about his glory and our good. In Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote this beautiful passage. He said, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, that doesn't mean that being a Christian guarantees health and wealth. It doesn't mean that if you read your Bible and pray before work that you're definitely going to get a good parking spot or that you're going to get a raise. 
It doesn't mean that God's people will not experience suffering, but this is what it does mean. It does mean that we can know for sure that our suffering is not arbitrary. It's all leading to glorification for those who believe. That's the thing that's often missed in this text when you just read the beginning part, and we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, if you stop there, you can make that mean anything, right? But what is Paul saying? First of all, he's saying, for those who love God, right? So this passage doesn't apply to anybody who's rejecting Jesus as the Son of God. It's for those who love God. And then what does this all things working together for good mean? It means if you believe in Jesus, you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, Uh, It means that you have also been called and that you have been justified and that you will be glorified. And on that day, when you stand in your resurrected, glorified body, you can look back on everything that's happened in your life and say, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Our Heavenly Father is providentially governing whatever suffering you're experiencing at this moment. Do you trust him? Are you physically suffering? Are you financially suffering? Are you emotionally suffering? Are you lonely? Is your marriage struggling? struggling with infertility or miscarriages? Are you burdened by family members who reject Jesus? All of this is not to minimize or trivialize suffering. We don't want to do that. Death is the enemy. Sickness and suffering are byproducts of the fall. We don't want to be those tone-deaf Christians who look at people in suffering and with a smile glibly say, well, God works all things together for good. No, we must be people who weep with those who weep and who mourn with those who mourn. We should pray for and work toward the alleviation of suffering, especially for those within the household of faith. That being said, though, we don't mourn in our suffering as those who have no hope. We we don't want to be the silly people with the trite, inauthentic optimism, but we must be the people who have a sober resolve that is resting in the promises of God. God allows his people to experience suffering. We don't always know why God allows us to experience suffering. In fact, we may never know why. But we do know that God is working all things from the rotation of planets to the decisions of global leaders like Pharaoh 
from the movements and sustaining of the smallest atom to the mundane moments of your life. God is working everything toward his glory and your good if you love Christ. We need to trust our Father in suffering. But we also need to trust our Father in sin. We don't want to respond to suffering by sinning. And that's how Moses and the Israelites respond here in Exodus chapter 5. Now again, as I mentioned, and if you're unfamiliar with the the book of Exodus and really the history of Israel in general, they're going to go up and down a lot, right? I mean, this is, it's like you're at Cedar Point, and this is a, I don't even want to call it a roller coaster. It's probably one of those spinning rides that go like this and are spinning the whole time, and you're just going to vomit. You know, there's no two ways about it. That's like, if we're going to, talk, if we're going to compare the faithfulness of Israel to a carnival ride, that's probably the ride, because they're going to be up and down a lot. But in this moment here, at the end of chapter 5, we see a lack of faith in their response. You know, at the beginning of chapter 5, Moses has the faith. He goes and obeys, but then by the end of chapter 5, he's He's, uh, he's, he's thrown off his game a little, and then that'll bleed into chapter 6 next week where Pastor Kevin has Yahweh's response, and then into chapter 7, but again, one at a time. In verse 21, the Hebrews complain to Moses. So Israel complains first. Verse 21, they say, Yahweh, look on you and judge you. They're like, Moses, you need to be judged because you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You put a sword in his hand to kill us. And then Moses says to the Lord, right, Moses gets panicked, turned to God, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Man, it's just like a recapitulation with Adam every time we sit. This woman you gave me, she's listening to this reptile, You know, Moses is like, why'd you even send me here? Listen, the Bible certainly allows for us to ask God hard questions and even to express frustration in prayer, right? The Psalms are filled with this kind of human vulnerability. But we must not remain in that place. A consistent disposition of questioning God or a consistent disposition of complaining against God is detrimental to your soul. That's what we see Israel do over and over again. Their lack of trust and thankfulness begins here, but it will continue through the Exodus story. Think of complaining about the manna. You should have just left us in Egypt. We had better food there. Think about the golden calf. Think about the time of the judges. Lack of trust and lack of thankfulness. I believe it was from Exodus chapter 4. Pastor Kevin exhorted us that we're called to trust and obey. Church, sometimes, in fact, I would say most of the time, if not all of the time, it really is that simple. You know, we want to make it cool 
have cool graphics and be all hipster and fun with like good music and yeah, but really, at the end of the day, man, Jesus said it. Jesus did it. Trust and obey. It's that simple. All sin has its root in not trusting what God has said. Every single sin that has been ever been committed by every single person has its root in not trusting what God has said. You can talk about it a lot of other ways. You can talk about pride, right? You can talk about rebellion. You can talk about missing the mark. These are multiple, these are different ways of saying we're not trusting what God has revealed about himself to us. Adam did not trust God to be the discerner of the knowledge of good and evil. He thought he should do that. Cain did not trust that Yahweh knew best when he prescribed an animal sacrifice. He thought that the, the, the yield of the ground, that his plants would be good enough. Abraham was not trusting in Yahweh and the promise when he jumped into bed with Hagar. Moses and Israel here are not trusting God's promises. And I think we can identify with Moses in this. As you're reading it, you're like, why is he freaking out? Now, again, I, I know it's been a couple weeks because we had Ascension, Pentecost, and Trinity, but remember, remember back to Pastor Kevin's sermon on Exodus 4. Yahweh tells Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him, he, I'm going to harden his heart, right? He's not going to say yes. So you're going to have to keep doing this, right? The Lord, the Lord told Moses that. Moses is like, all right, sweet, let's do it. And he gets there and he's like, Pharaoh, let the people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And Moses is like, what? <laughs> but the Lord said, but man, that, do you not identify with that? When you take a step back, you're like, oh my goodness. This is every time we sin. This is what we do, right? The Lord told him how it was going to go. Moses believed he had enough faith to get there, but man, that shut down real fast when Pharaoh said no. We do the same when we sin. When we lose control of our anger and take matters into our own hands, we are not trusting that God is the holy judge who will execute perfect justice. When we pursue our lust through sex outside of the marriage of one man and one woman, we're not trusting that God knows what he's doing when he restricted sex to covenantal heterosexual monogamy. When we neglect the means of grace, when we neglect coming to church, hearing the preaching of the word, taking the Eucharist, praying together, singing together, we are not trusting that God knows best how he is to be worshiped. And we are not trusting that God knows best how we are to grow and to be sustained and to persevere. When we don't give of our tithes and offerings, we're not trusting God to provide for us. All sin has its root in not trusting what God has said. We must be the people who trust our Heavenly Father in the midst of our sin and our suffering. So we trust when our Father speaks. We trust our Father in the midst of sin and suffering. And finally, we must trust the Father's Son. 
We are sinners. We confessed it earlier. We do it every week. But thanks be to God that there was and that there is a sinless man who stood in our place. We get a glimpse of this starting in verse 3. Listen to what Moses and Aaron say to Pharaoh. They say, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. This is not the only time in Exodus chapter 5 that the sacrifice to Yahweh is mentioned. In fact, three times in this pericope, it's noted that Israel is to go and make a sacrifice to God. Exodus 5.3, Exodus 5.8, and Exodus 5.17. Three times. Now, we know that it's no coincidence that Yahweh wants Israel... Remember one chapter earlier, Israel is called his son, the son of God. He wants his son to go three days and to make a sacrifice. Pastor Zach read from John chapter 5 in our call to worship, where Christ reveals to us that Moses and the prophets were writing about him. Moses is the author of the book of Exodus. And this three-day sacrifice is one of the places where he's telling us of Jesus. It's a providential picture. It's a signpost. It's a shadow that's pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. Remember, we, we said this a few weeks ago. Whenever you see in your Bible, the Old Testament especially, but anywhere in the Bible, something about three days, don't outthink that puppy. That should always make you think of Jesus. That should always make you think of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. The Holy Spirit wrote Exodus chapter 5 knowing what Jesus is going to do. And he is pointing you forward to Jesus. Just like in the empire revealed that Luke Skywalker is the son of Darth Vader, the New Testament reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the true Son of God. He is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a truly human life, yet without sin. And Jesus made the true and final sacrifice to God. We just sang about it, didn't we? Hallelujah, Lamb of God for sinners slain. Jesus offered up his sinless life and died as a sacrifice for his people. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt that we owed for sin, bearing God's holy and eternal justice in our place. Jesus was buried, and three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead. Moses tells Pharaoh that if they do not make this three days journey, to sacrifice to Yahweh, that Yahweh will fall upon them with pestilence and sword, in verse 3. I don't remember which one, another uh, translation uh, translated that as disease and death. That if they don't make this sacrifice, they're going to experience disease and death. God's wrath against sin must be appeased through sacrifice. Why? Because the, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. 
And what is the first thing that God does when he makes the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15? He sacrifices animals so that Adam and Eve can be covered in that pseudo-righteousness. That their shame, that their guilt can be covered. What was God telling them when he did that in Genesis 3, when he covered them up? He's saying, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Death is the just punishment, the just it's the just reaction, the right reaction of God against sin. And sin, death must be appeased through sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, satisfied the wrath of God through his sacrifice. Jesus took a three-day journey through suffering, hell, death, burial, paradise, and resurrection for us and for our salvation. Now everyone who will repent of their sin, everyone who will place their faith in Christ alone will be redeemed from their sin. Just like Israel was redeemed from their slavery, those who look to Christ are redeemed from the slavery of sin and death. If we repent, if we have faith, well, what does that mean? Repentance means that you turn the other direction. Repentance means that you agree with God, that he is holy and that you are a sinner. And to have faith, the other side of that coin is faith. Faith in Christ consists of three components, knowledge, assent, and trust. You must know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You must assent to the validity of those truth claims about Jesus. But even those things fall short of genuine faith because the third element of saving faith is trust. You must trust in Jesus alone. You must place the full weight of your hope on Christ. And so this morning, from Exodus 5, on this Father's Day, I ask you, are you trusting in the Son of the Heavenly Father? Are you looking to his three-day journey to sacrifice and appease the sword of the Lord? Or are you like Pharaoh? Are you rejecting this three-day sacrifice? Are you saying in your heart, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not trust in the sacrifice of his son. On this Father's Day, we must be the people who trust in the Son of our Heavenly Father. Darth Vader told Luke Skywalker, I am your father. In Christ, God tells us, I am your father. The New Testament reveals to us that God is the Heavenly Father and all who trust in Christ alone are his children. We sang this earlier. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God the Father has adopted us in Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are now the ones who can cry out, Abba, Father, to God through his son, Jesus. And even now, we're invited to dine at our Father's table. But a word of warning, Holy Communion is only for believers in Jesus Christ. It is only for those who are sons and daughters of the Father. So if you are not a Christian, then this morning you should abstain from the bread and abstain from the wine, and you should take Christ by faith. You don't need the bread and the wine this morning. You need Jesus. But for those who do believe in Jesus... The Lord's Supper is our weekly family meal with our Heavenly Father and with our elder brother. For millennia, as Christians have come to the Lord's table, they have prayed the Lord's Prayer. And so I'm going to close this sermon with the Lord's Prayer, asking you to listen along. And I'll ask you to listen to these ancient words with fresh ears as we prepare for our Father's Day meal with our heavenly Father and our elder brother. Jesus taught us to pray. He said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, 